Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 60th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I'm the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the literature and ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways like our graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by one of my favorite authors, Sebastian Younger. And before I even get into introducing our guest, I want to remind all of you who are uh, watching us on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, uh, you can use the comment sections to type in your questions. Please make them short and take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to chat with Sebastian. Uh, Sebastian Younger is the New York Times best-selling author of five books, Tribe, War, A Death in Belmont, Fire, and of course, The Perfect Storm. He is the uh, co-director of the Academy Award-nominated documentary, Restrepo, which took home the grand jury prize at Sundance. His latest book, Freedom, it explores the tension between the two human drives for independence uh, and community. And it is a really fascinating read juxtaposed against a journey that he took with three friends, including two Afghan war vets along the railroad lines of the East Coast of the United States. Sebastian, welcome again. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, thanks for having me. So uh, this is an aptly timed interview for your book, uh, Freedom. We just celebrated Independence Day uh, this past weekend. How did you spend your Independence Day this year? Well, um, I have two young uh, children, two little girls, age four and age one and a half. And we, you know, we all, we, the family sleeps together and we usually head off to bed whenever the girls get sleepy around nine or 10 PM. And by the time the fireworks were going off, I think I was sound asleep. We, I think we're, we all were sound asleep. I've been in enough combat that fireworks will wake me up. Um, it's not my favorite time of year. Uh, and it didn't even wake me up. So I was pretty tired. So that's interesting. And I, I read a bit about your your new family and and you have some uh, strong views which you are practicing in terms of how you're, you're raising your children. A lot of them are based on your understanding of history and of uh, sort of evolutionary biology. So my question is when you and your children as a family, you sleep together, do they end up going to bed later or do you end up going to bed earlier? Uh, I sort of, a little bit of both, I think. I mean, they, they you know, the, the little one falls asleep. Uh, she, she nurses and she falls asleep nursing usually around nine o'clock, right? And, and, the, and the older one lasts about another hour or so. We read stories and things like that. And so my wife and the little one will go up it's not a bed. We sleep on a, uh, on a on the floor, on a pad on the floor that takes up sort of most of the room. So she, so they go off to bed, and then by the time my little one and I join them, uh, they're asleep, and and we fall asleep. And so it's you know it really is dictated by when everyone gets sleepy. But I would say that I get more sleep than I used to, 
because I do go to bed earlier. Uh, you know, when I was, you know, quote, quote, young and single in New York, I would go to bed at all hours and, and then wake up early. And so, you know, that's very hard on your health. So I would say this has actually been a very restful time for us. Well, that's very interesting because a lot of uh, relatively new parents would say that having children is not uh, conducive to getting more sleep. So happy to hear that's not the, the case with, uh, with you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Independence Day uh, commemorates the passage of the Declaration of Independence, a rejection of despotic government, um, followed by the Constitution, which is strictly focused on limiting the power of government. In that context, um, freedom is a a measure of individual and community autonomy from government control. Uh, Is that how you understand freedom in this book? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to limit it to the United States and to the, you know, frankly, wonderful revolution that we had in 1776 that threw off a tyrannical power, King George III. And, you know, he was the end of a long line of uh, European despots who had ruled Europe through the Middle Ages with an iron hand and were basically were bound by no laws, by no morality other than the ones they elected to follow. Um, and everyone else was effectively serfs. And so what we threw, what we Americans threw off was that terrible, that terrible legacy. And what we claimed as a right was that the people the people have the right to govern themselves through representatives that they elect. And that those representatives, some of whom were very powerful people, uh, very rich and very powerful, and the generals, and everyone else of, of real consequence and importance in society, that all of those people were bound by the same laws and had to pay the same taxes as everybody else. And so that was revolutionary to put powerful people under the jurisdiction of the same laws and authorities that the commoners were under. That was a a very revolutionary principle. Uh, And the framers, of course, were themselves drawn from an elite segment of society and they placed themselves under those same constraints, right? And they really understood that they were there to serve the people and not the other way around. So what I would say is that every human society has to find this balance between the having being sufficiently well-organized and hierarchical to maintain public order in a public defense, but not so much so that an abusive or cruel arbitrary ruler can use the apparatus of state to suppress the individual and to enrich him or herself at the expense of everyone else. Yeah, I've been enjoying some of the the quotes which you've created or someone on your team has created into memes on uh, your social media accounts. And, And one of them I think was along the lines that any society which is organized enough to protect itself can also be organized enough to oppress uh, the, the people that are within that community. So um, yeah, yeah it, it, is a, it is a tension. Um, but again, as I mentioned, you combined it with this, with this journey, this 400 mile journey that you and a few friends took on foot uh, following the train tracks, of course, us at the Atlas Society, with Al- inspired by Atlas Shrugged, we have a, a special fondness for uh, for the railroad and and railroad metaphors. Um, what what inspired you? I know uh, reading some of your your previous interviews, you had um, gone on a hitchhiking trip uh, in your early twenties, but this was a very different kind of trip. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the guys I did this with were, um, we'd all been in a lot of combat and, you know, I think we were all having some effects from that, not grave ones, but some effects. Um, and one of those effects is to feel somewhat alienated from the society you're coming home to. Um, that might not, you may not get that problem if you're fighting within your home territory against an invader. That probably feels very different. But for all of us, we were in other places uh, and coming back to a society that struck us as somewhat odd when we came back. And so what we wanted to do, what I wanted to do was encounter this country that I, that I love dearly. My father emigrated here. He was a refugee from two wars in Europe. Uh, he fled fascism in 1936 in Spain and then and then when the Nazis came into France, and he just was uh, adored this country for what it offered to humanity and to, to him. Uh, and I, you know, I feel the same way. And I, and I wanted to get to know my country again in the most sort of unfiltered way possible. And for some reason, staring out at the window of a train going down to DC one day from New York, uh, you know, I realized, wow, there's a way to walk along the railroad lines the whole way. Like there's dirt bike trails and maintenance roads and woods and cornfields and sometimes through ghettos and rich suburbs, whatever, but you can thread your way through. And I understood the rail lines to be a kind of no man's land. There's no police surveillance out there. I mean, if they know that you're out there, the police will come try to find you, which happened to us a couple of times. But basically it's no man's land, it's unmonitored. There's other marginal people out there and it's sort of wide open for whatever your needs are. So if it's raining, you can camp under a bridge, under an overpass. And there's creeks to get your water out of, and there's firewood to make, you know, to cook, you make fires to cook on, and and you go through every conceivable American environment. And I thought that's what I want to do. And so we walked um, in several sections. We didn't do it all at once over the course of a year, from Washington D.C. to Philadelphia, and then instead of continuing to New York as we planned, we sort of wheeled westwards and headed for Pittsburgh and cross the length of Pennsylvania, mostly along the Juniata River, which we can talk about uh, in a bit if you'd like. Uh, and as I say in the book, um, over the course of 400 miles, most nights we were the only people who knew where we were and that there's many definitions of freedom. They're all interesting and we're talking about, but surely that's, surely that's one of them. And it was, a, it was a form of freedom that I found uh, extremely gratifying to experience, although it was very hard. We called it high-speed vagrancy we were carrying 60, 70 pounds on our backs. And, uh, you know, physically speaking, it was a very arduous trip. So one of the evenings on your journey, you were cooking dinner uh, when a freight train you described thundering by with so much noise and, and power, you asked what would it take to stop something like that instantaneously? And you thought, well, maybe a wall, and then you thought, no, it would have to be another train traveling in the same, uh, at the same speed, but in the opposite direction. And you thought America could be seen like that as well, a country moving so fast and with so much weight that only a head-on collision with itself could make it stop. So unpack that metaphor for us. If yeah, you know. I mean, we're the most powerful country in the world by orders of magnitude and probably ever in history. And um, it, it's, it's hard for me to imagine, I mean, maybe it could happen, but it's hard for me to imagine a foreign power um, other than, I don't know, an alien invasion or something, but it's hard for me to imagine the Russians or the Chinese or whoever you want to imagine 
coming into this country and defeating us and taking over this land. I just, just militarily speaking, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's conceivable. I don't, I don't think they get get past our navy for starters. I don't even think they get to our shores. You know, so, so the threat. I mean, we can be harmed by other groups such as Al Qaeda. Obviously, harmed us grievously on 9/11 20 years ago. Um, but I, I don't think that's an existential threat. Um, but what to me is an existential threat is the possibility of a political and even a violent split within this country that actually just sort of destroys the democratic norms that we all count on for peaceful transi transitions of power and for a, a you know, a, a society that at least stri is striving to be equitable and egalitarian and just. Well, interesting, um, you know, when we talk about freedom and what those definitions are, uh, and then of course, equitable and egalitarian, um, whether that is we're all equal before the law or that you know we're seeking you know equal equal outcomes and um I, I think that there are many people that came to the country to our country from other countries that were promising an egalitarian ideal uh were promising community collectivism and uh you know your your wife is a grew up in, in communist Bulgaria and, and reading about her experience um, living crowded in a one bedroom apartment with, with no hot water, no, no central heating. It reminded me a lot of uh, an, another woman who came um, from totalitarianism, of course, that's Ayn Rand. And um, the, root, the, the root of the word communism and community, you know, that they, they, they derived from a, a similar kind of um, etymological uh, meaning. But, uh, you know, I think that some of the people that have fled um, communism have a certain cynicism, skepticism about a government that, that promises a community and a shared distribution of, of resources. So what, what lessons about freedom can we can yeah. draw from uh, experiences of such countries that were trying right. to achieve these egalitarian uh, ends by by totalitarian control, or maybe yeah. even not necessarily originally totalitarian control, but uh, that you know if you are trying to enforce or ensure equal outcomes, uh, force right. you know becomes uh, inevitable. Yeah, and that and that was my uh, my actually pre my 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 first wife, my former wife uh, Daniela, uh, who I'm still very good friends with. And that was I'm, I'm remarried. Um, yeah, she grew up. Um, the first half of her life was under communism, and then the second half, until she came to America, uh, was after the the wall fell in Russia. Um, so, uh, I mean, a lot of points, and I'm trying to recall them. But basically, every every government does uh, share resources with everybody to some degree. Every time you build a federal highway, you're sharing, re you're taking taxes and, and, and building a resource that all can use. I mean, every government does that. Um, if you're on a life raft, if your boat sinks and you're on a life raft and you have 10 gallons of water, um, there is a common agreement among the people on the life raft about how fast to drink the water, right? And you may want more than five sips a day, but if the group decides that it's risky to drink the whole thing now, um, you're out of luck. 
right? And and so that's you know that writ small is sort of how how government works. It figures out what the resources are and how to distribute them. You know what I would say about communism. I mean, first of all, communism and totalitarianism are not the same thing. You can be a totalitarian state and not be communist. Um, I, you know, I think the the the, the, the word community refers to an ancient and organic human norm where people are able to survive and even thrive because they live in the context of a group. I mean, humans die immediately in nature if they're alone. They die within days usually. Um, but in groups, uh, we have been able to survive and, and thrive and even and actually dominate the, the, the planet. Um, we're social primates and we are not designed to, to survive by ourselves. And in fact, there's an amazing example and a tragic one of the, the last, um, what can we call him? Uh, the last free person, entirely free, independent, autonomous person in this country was a man named Ishii. He was from the Yahi tribe in California. He was the last of the Yahi. And he lived for years, his whole, all of his people died out. Uh, and he, he lived into the 1900s independently in the canyons south of Mount Lassen in California. And he had you know, Stone Age survival skills, that was his environment. And alone, he could not do it. He finally wandered down into a nearby town uh, and gave himself up because he could not survive by himself. So, so community refers to the people immediately around you that help provide your survival needs and hopefully, hopefully ease the emotional and physical burdens of, uh, of life. You know, communism is really describes a, a system of government where the, the major industries have been collectivized, are owned by the state. Um, the state pays a sort of small stipend to everybody so that nobody starves and nobody gets rich. There's, there's easy access to sort of mediocre health care. Um, you, you will always have housing. I mean, that, you know, we can argue whether that's a good or a bad, bad paradigm. Obviously, the, the wall fell in 1989. Capitalism took over for some good, both good and bad effects. Um, but the, the small communities of the sort that my former wife grew up in, in these housing complexes, very similar to the communities in the, in the, in the developments in, in, in Manhattan that I live near in the Lower East Side. Uh, you know, those, those, those little communities continue to function exactly like they did before the wall fell, right? They were just small groupings of people that relied on each other for their basic needs. And, and you know, that didn't change. And that's an eternal human need. That I think it's totally independent of the kind of government we have. Um, yes, well, we're probably not going to agree on, uh, on, on communism um, because my view is that, uh, you know, the, the, um, if you're going to want to have equal outcomes um, that you're actually also going to uh, not be able to generate. I mean, first resources have to be created in order to be shared and, and that requires you know, capital and that requires freedom and, and competition. Um, but certainly there is no debating with the, the, the need for, for community. And I, I think that as you demonstrate in your book and as you demonstrated in Tribe, uh, part of what the difficult transition that uh, a lot of the soldiers that you were embedded with uh, over in Afghanistan, um, it was not so much the trauma that they experienced in, um, in war and then coming back to peacetime, but, that, but actually it was not necessarily leaving something bad, coming back to something good. 
it was the experience of having a community, of having this band of brothers, and then coming back and having that shift to uh, a sort of a single person's lifestyle, or even even within a family. And um, and you also talk about a similar kind of experience that even people that had been in the Peace Corps uh, yeah. that did not have as as much of a traumatic experience um, come back came back to, and, and that's something. I related to because uh, my my parents were in, in the Peace Corps and that's that's where I was was born in India. Wow. Um, so so in your film, which which I had the the opportunity to watch, Restrepo uh, was nominated for an Academy Award and and your book War uh, is both a riveting account of your experience alongside a single platoon throughout a 15 month tour of duty um, in the most dangerous outpost in uh, Afghanistan's Korangal Valley. But it's uh, also a exploration of the psychology of combat and wartime. And one of the sidebars that I thought was, was interesting was from your perspective as a journalist trying to maintain journalistic integrity, you know, following the rules, even as, you know, you were for all intents and purposes living, you know, with these men uh, as, as part of their community. Um, and you talked about how journalists endeavoring to, to cover an assignment could find themselves relying on uh, a paradigm of, uh, of, that they had inherited from the, the Vietnam War and um, kind of a, a default mode of cynicism and an assumption of despair on the part of the troops, uh, which was not borne out you know, by, the, uh, by the experience of the men themselves. Is that, could yeah. you elaborate on that? Yeah, of course. No, it's a great topic. Um, and let me just say, I think our views on communism are probably just about identical. I think it's an awful, awful oppressive system, and uh, and 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 I, I don't think that they are looking for similar outcomes. I think it's more complex than that. But I know I think we're in total agreement. It's a horrible system, a horrible thing to do to a society. Um, but yeah, for for Restrepo, um, so there were two things going on, um, and of course, as in any sort of bad marriage or whatever, they were feeding each other. So you had a, a, a default cynicism by the press corps because the last major war that the US was in was in Vietnam. And frankly, there was a lot of dishonesty at times by the government. And you know, the war started with the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which itself was not an entirely honest uh, uh, communication by the government. And uh, you know, there were, there were some sound reasons for fighting that war, but they weren't necessarily communicated to the public, I think. So there was some cynicism by the press that carried, carried forward to the next, you know, generation of like daring war, uh, daring war, war journalists who, who, you know, like traipsed off to Afghanistan to cover the next. I'm putting this in quotes, right? The next U.S. debacle, right? And mm -hmm. their default assumption was that generals are stupid and they lie to you, and that the, every war is wrong, and et cetera, et cetera, right? And but to, but the military, the military played their part as well, right? They didn't trust the press as far as they could throw them, so. They were often really not very honest with them either. And I remember talking to a press officer, you know, we were there for so long and we were so well liked and so well known, so familiar to these guys that they started, I think they, 
they started, they forgot that we were civilians or that we were journalists or whatever, like we were sort of in the brotherhood, right? And so one guy, um, a press officer said, hey, Sebastian, can you just tell me, just give me some advice about how to talk to the press? Because they don't believe anything I say. <laughs> and I laughed and I, and I said, well, they don't believe anything you say because you only give them good news, right? But surely bad things happen in a war. I mean, by definition they do, right? So um, if the casualty count is, the American casualty count's going up, don't say it's because the insurgency's losing and getting desperate. Like that's just nonsensical. Like give them an honest answer. And if you say something that makes the, uh, that it, if you say something that, uh, that isn't good, they will trust you when you say something that is good that you did build that school and it did educate some children, et cetera, et cetera. But if you only give them the good news, they're human beings. They know, they know how to sniff out nonsense, right? So you gotta be, treat them like adults and give them both because both is the reality. I don't know if he followed my advice on that or not, but you can see the sort of cycle that the two got into with the press corps and the, and the, and the press officers chasing, chasing each other around, each determined to in, instill they're completely like binary story in the other person's thinking. Now, was your experience, do you think that uh, the extent of the access that you had, the amount of time that you spent, was that, it doesn't seem standard, but, but maybe, maybe it was. Uh, you know, we, we thought sort of slipped through the gap, right? I mean, no one, I think the military, I think it didn't, the military is used to dealing with uh, press photographers, TV, uh, press journalists, and, and uh, I mean, TV and, and, and newspaper journalists who, you know, basically they, these organizations have enough money to send someone on one trip for two weeks and that's it. And they get a, you know, a sort of sampling of what's going on. They come home and they write their story. And inevitably it's a story about, the, it's a big picture story. I mean, maybe they focus on the outpost, but there's always the paragraph, the three paragraphs framing it in how is the war going? What are the mistakes that were made? What are the, you know, whatever. It's, it's standard front page journalism. What they weren't prepared for was uh, two journalists who were not filing daily deadlines, were not filing at all, in fact, for the, over the course of a year, hardly at all, and had the money to do you know, trip after trip to the same little outpost that was in the middle of nowhere and had almost no bearing on the overall war. And, you know, at the very end, uh, my colleague, Tim, uh, who I made this Restrepo with, we both, you know, carried video cameras, shot all the video. We were there sometimes together, sometimes apart. Tim had gone there in, you know, May. Our, most of our trips were like a month. And like two months later, the, the colonel showed up and passed through, uh, through the area and saw Tim and realized he'd been in there the entire time and was, was pretty upset. And so I think the military just, it never occurred to them two journalists would do this. What I will say is that we weren't covering the war. We were trying to understand the, the subjective experience of a group of about 30 guys. And uh, so we were not making any commentary about good, bad decisions. Is it moral, immoral, nothing like that. We were really completely embedded subjectively with this platoon and our work product came out way later. Mm -hmm. Is Tim the, the friend and colleague that, uh, that was killed? Yeah, Tim, uh, Tim was killed uh, um, just 10 years ago. 
Um, he, a few weeks after we went to the Oscars, we didn't uh, win an Oscar, but we were nominated for an Oscar for Restrepo. And we were very proud to be on the red carpet. And we took a couple of soldiers and their wives, you know, from the platoon. And it was pretty amazing. Very proud moment for, for us. And um, we were supposed to head off on assignment to Libya to cover the civil war in Libya that was raging. It was the Arab Spring and the, you know, the Arab world was inflamed. We're journalists. You know, we do things, we do many more things than just cover the US military, right? We've covered all kinds of things for years. The Arab world's in flames. We want to go cover it. Uh, the last minute I couldn't go. And Tim went on his own and was killed in the city of Misrata uh, by a mortar fired by Gaddafi's forces. He was on the front line and he just caught a little piece of metal in his groin, but it hit his artery, his femoral artery, and he bled out in the back of a rebel pickup truck uh, racing for the Misrata hospital with, with some other uh, wounded uh, uh, Libyan fighters. Very, very rough. I'm, I'm remembering the, the article now about the, um, about your experience at the Oscars and things that you're going through in, in your life at the time. And now I'm, I'm starting to get the, uh, the timeline correct. Yeah. So thanks for that correction. Um, so, you know, spending over a year, uh, 15 months with these men, um, filming them, sleeping with them, eating with them, going out on trolls, going out on missions with them, um, asking for advice, giving advice. You know, you got to know them pretty yeah. well. And I mean, to the extent that even years later, they, they uh, came along with you on um, the journey that ended up being part of, part of this, this book. Uh, so thinking about the, the paradigms, um, another paradigm that uh, that we are, you know, obsessed with right now is is this idea of systematic institutional uh, racism, and um, and that is a theme that you do explore, I think, um, beautifully and tragically in uh, a death in Belmont, um, but. With regard to your experience with with these soldiers in, in Afghanistan, with the troops in Afghanistan, was your experience that uh, how, I mean, how critical was skin color um, in the way that soldiers, white soldiers, black soldiers, thought about themselves, thought about each other, thought about uh, their country, one way or another? Was that one of your big takeaways from, from your time? I didn't, you know, I didn't actually interview them about what they thought about their country. They weren't thinking about their country a whole lot. You know, I mean, they missed their girlfriends and, and their, their, their families and what have you. Um, but they were really focused on what they were doing there. And mm -hmm. their, their orientation was do the mission safely, get everyone home alive, you know, do our work. And, and go home and leave it, leave the, the, the Korangal Valley in a little better condition for the next unit then they received it in. And that was, you know, in other words, they were complete professionals and they did. So I didn't have conversations about America per se. Um, what I will say is that I, 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 I myself didn't see examples of racism. Maybe I wouldn't recognize it if I saw it, but I didn't, I didn't see any. But there, the combat units were almost completely white, uh, white and Latino. I mean, there was in, in a um, second platoon uh, battle company of the 173rd Airborne that I was with, uh, there was one black guy and uh, and he, you know, I asked him eventually, you know, it took me a while to get to know him and he was he's sort of interesting personality and, and a little intimidating, frankly. And and uh, 
and wonderful guy, really amazing and incredible soldier. And, and what he, I asked him, I finally sort of worked up the nerve to, to um, ask something personal of him. I said, what do you make of this? You're only black guy in the platoon. Does that, what's with that? Right. And he said, ah, he said, you know, uh, he said, look, black folks really aren't that eager to get shot at. You know, it happens enough in their neighborhoods. Like, we're not going to sign up for it. He said, I'm a weirdo, you know, and, and, uh, but, you know, he was laughing as he said it, but that was his answer about the, the fact that the, the, the combat platoons were almost completely um, uh, non-African-American. Uh, they were white and Latino primarily. And, but he also said this other thing. He said, you know, that everybody here, uh, he said, nobody, he said, he said that he hadn't really experienced any racism. He said, once in a while, there's a little whip of something that is a little ugly. And he said, it's very, very rare, once in a while. He said, but you know what? Even those guys, those few guys that he believes were maybe a little racist in their thinking, he said, you know what? I'm a good soldier and not one of them wouldn't take me in a firefight. They would all have me by their side in a firefight. And so that reality of combat uh, where you may need to give, give blood to help save a wounded brother's life. You may need to run through gunfire to drag a wounded brother to safety or they would do that for you. Like in that, in that sort of circumstance, not only does race disappear, but so do politics, right? There were Democrats out there and Republicans and everything in between. There was religious people and a lot of non-religious people. There was everything, right? And no one really paid any heed to any of it um, at a place like that. Well, that's, um, that's interesting. You know, saying that politics wasn't playing a big role, race wasn't playing a big role, people were focused on, on what they had to do, religion wasn't playing a big role. Um, and uh, earlier this year, some lawmakers um, like Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee voiced concerns about the ideological makeup of National Guardsmen, um, posing a potential national uh, security threat. There's been calls for the US military to more closely vet soldiers for extremist views. Um, from your per perspective, is that, is, that, is that a concern? I mean, do, do you think that these are all potential uh, white supremacist insurrectionists? Or it, it doesn't sound like it's matching up with, with your well, experience. Yeah, I mean, I you know we, I have a sample size of thirty here, and there's two million people. And if I'm well, there's a sample size of thirty. Yet, you probably from your relationships, their relationships. I mean, it, it wasn't cut off from the, the larger military experience. Yeah, I mean, you know what I would say to that is no. I mean, the, the men that I knew it was all men out there, and the men that I knew were not voicing opinions like that. But it was also it was 2007. You know, this is almost 15 years ago that there, there's been a lot of social and political changes in this country since then. Um, and my understanding uh, from conversations uh, is that on the larger bases like Bagram, um, there, that there were actually were sort of, quote, big city problems, right? There was sexual harassment, there was rape, uh, there was racism, that, the, that those problems disappeared in the in the you know, in the extreme danger and isolation of the small outposts. But once you got to the larger bases where, where most U.S. military is, right? I mean, most of the U.S. military is not at tiny outposts. Mm -hmm. the, you know, it's a sort of, you know, we see the dramatic stuff. That's the tip of the iceberg. But most of the iceberg is underwater at larger bases. 
And so there may well have been societal problems in those bases. I just didn't experience because I was never at them. I mean, what I will say is that my, you know, on Facebook, basically, uh, I, I, you know, some years ago when I en enrolled with Facebook, like I didn't really understand how it worked. And basically anyone who wanted to be my friend, I'd say yes. Right. <laughs> so I got in it. I got a really weird, diverse sampling. Uh, I'm a Democrat. So I got a whole bunch of lefties that say annoying things. I got a whole bunch of conservatives that are also saying annoying things, a bunch of soldiers, a bunch of everything, right? And, you know, I, I mean, I do have to say in recent years, some of the, the online rhetoric, which maybe doesn't represent honest views. I think there's a sort of escalation of rhetoric that happens in social media that I don't mm -hmm. entirely take at face value. But, you know, there's some, you know, I've seen some vets, you know, say some pretty disturbing things about, you know, the coming civil war in this country and, you know, whatever, just stuff that to me is not very democratically minded. And, um, you know, if it's obnoxious enough, I just take the, I just unfriend them because I don't want to read it. I think it's um, insulting to, to the sacrifices that many have made for this democracy. But, um, you know, basically I think the, the concern I think there was a, a study done, right, of political opinion within the military. And, the, and, and I think, that, you know, I'm guessing the military monitors social media and they're probably seeing some of the same comments that I've been, that I've seen. And I think their concern probably came from that. I, I, I'm not cynical enough to think that they would mount an inquiry, inquiry like that um, with zero basis. I just don't know why they would do that. Um, so, but I, you know, I don't know, I'm not an expert. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I would ask the Congressman yeah, fair, fair enough. Um, uh, we are going to get to some of the questions. I'm going to take a look at, at those, but I also wanted to, to return to the topic we had touched upon earlier, which is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, you've, you've written about the challenges of soldiers find in transitioning from combat to civilian life. And, and you made, a, I thought, a very interesting point. You said that ex-combatants should not be encouraged to see themselves as victims. And uh, from your perspective, how has our understanding of PTSD changed? And uh, do you see a danger or risk of treating uh, it as a, as a chronic pathology, which you know categorizes people as uh, permanent victims? Right, I mean, I, I think any psychologist would say no one should cling to the victim identity because it precludes recovery. Right. And if you become dependent on it, either because you're getting a, you know, a government stipend or, you know, whatever, or you just your identity depends on that victimhood as a source of sort of social empowerment. You know, anyone who clings that identity, clings to that identity is uh, doing themselves a disservice. So, I, you know, I would include, you know, veterans in that in that group. You know, one of the predictors of long term PTSD, I mean, there is a biological and psychological reaction to trauma. You have a car accident. Certain things are going to happen to you psychologically and physically in the ensuing days and weeks that is your body adapting to the trauma and, and recovering from it, right? Uh, that's a trauma reaction. Uh, it's transitory. And in most people, within a month or so, it's starting to, it starts to sort of ease off. There are people, and, and statistically, they are associated with childhood trauma. Um, there are people who are traumatized as adults, including veterans. Uh, childhood trauma, meaning violence and sexual trauma, of course, um, that makes them particularly vulnerable, not to PTSD, but to long-term chronic PTSD, which can last a lifetime. Something like 20% of people who have been traumatized 
just keeps cycling back into this trauma loop and can't get out of it. And that's where you have a chronic condition. I think the word victim is, um, I don't think it has a, a place in the therapeutic uh, conversation, but in terms of long-term uh, trauma reaction, um, there is a real danger in classifying oneself as permanently disabled by PTSD. There's some financial incentives to do that because the, the military will continue give, giving you disability payments. There's social incentives to do it. People take pity on you. They, they have empathy because mm -hmm. you, you were brave, you fought for the country and you paid a price. Um, there's a lot of sort of incentives to continue that sort of wounded warrior sort of um, identity. Um, but in the end of the day, it keeps you from re reintegrating in a healthy way back into society, which supposedly is the point of all this. So, you know, I, you know, I would say, um, I would say that's a, that's a real danger in the, in a, in a medical establishment that tends to pathologize and then medicate problems. Mm -hmm. um, culturally, do, do you think there's something larger going on here? Uh, it, not just having to do with, with veterans, but how we, we view victimhood. You know, I remember um, my grandmother, when um, something would happen to you, you'd fall down or whatever, you complain, she'd just say, well, just get on up and go about your business and stop crying and stop complaining. Uh, and it, it seems, you know, just that, though compassionate that, uh, that we might be going overboard and then also um, within a context of trying to be compassionate about people who have had a bad experience or had something bad happen to them, that, uh, that there's almost an, a moral exaltation to, to, yeah. to victimhood, um, which can then make it something that like, oh, I'm, I'm oppressed, I've, you know, yeah. somebody spoke to me in a wrong way. So, yeah. well, I mean, I think our society um, has incentivized victimhood by giving people the misunderstanding that victims get extra rights, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, I think that's uh, not only bad for society, I think it's bad for the individuals and it incentivizes people to see themselves as victims and they sort of claim these extra rights and other people they can sort of silence other people by saying, I'm the biggest victim in the room. So you be quiet now, you listen to my truth or whatever, right? I hate that kind of thinking. And, you know, there's victimhood all over the place. There's some, you know, you know, you know extreme left-wing people who think they're victims. There are extreme right-wing people who think they're victims. There are some of the people that invaded the US Capitol on January 6th think they were victims, right? I mean, on and on, it goes on and on, right? And so there's victims everywhere and I think you know, I think what we need, I think we have a lack of compassion in our society. It's a mass industrialized, highly technological society, very atomized, very alienated. I think there's a sort of lack of compassion. And, and but then on the other hand, there's a sort of over victimization of people. And, and, and I think they're both very bad. I'll, I'll, I'll end this answer with an, a quick anecdote of someone who I think could serve as an example to us all. Uh, on whatever side of the political spectrum you're on or vet or non-vet or anything like so I was, I, 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 was uh, I gave a talk down at Norf Norfolk Naval Base and I was leaving the next morning. I was in a hotel off post early in the morning and I came out from the hotel waiting for my car to the airport. And, and there was this old guy in a wheelchair missing half his right leg, bandaged, right? He, it had just been taken off him, right? And he was trying to get into a locked car and I walked up and I was like, hey, can I help you, sir? And he said, oh, that's okay. I'll just wait for my wife who has the keys. 
And, um, and I said, wow, that, I looked down at his leg. I said, you know, that, that seems really painful. And, uh, and he says, oh, it's okay. He had no, no self-pity at all. He's like, oh, it's okay. It's interesting. It's a new situation. It's interesting. He wouldn't even say it was painful, right? So I was like, oh, you're a tough nut. I'll try again. I said, wow, you seem really brave about it. And he looked at me like I was the biggest fool he'd seen all week. And he said, brave about it. There's young people in this country missing both their legs. Don't tell me that I'm brave, right? And, you know, he wasn't making any distinction about any of those people, right? Democrats, Republicans, black, white, old, whatever. He, he was just saying there are other Americans who are suffering more than me. Don't worry about me, sir, right? And, you know, I think we all, we all need a dose of that all across the political spectrum and the social spectrum. Well, one of the, the themes that we focus on at the Atlas Society, so we, we do focus on, on victimhood. We've done a Draw My Life, My Name is Victimhood to talk about how that, uh, that can be so spiritually corrosive and also how it can be politically manipulated both to, to gain power, to gain extra, you know, extra, extra goodies or extra privileges. Uh, but we also did kind of a flip side video on gratitude and, um, and that's something which is a, an antidote. It's kind of kryptonite to, to victimhood and, um, and to resentment and to, uh, to so many of the kind of for me pathologies yeah. that we can obsess about. Yeah. Oh, gratitude is, is enormously important. I think the older you get, the easier it is to access because you start counting your days. I mean, I almost died last year. I had a um, undiagnosed. Yeah, did you, you share I, that experience? I mean, it's it was when you were just mentioning your friend and having his his femoral artery cut. I mean, we had a very strangely similar experience caused by nothing. Yeah, I, I had an undiagnosed aneurysm in, in an abdominal artery, asymptomatic. It was congenital, right? It was just, I was born with it. And, uh, and it, without warning, it ruptured last year and I lost 90% of my blood, nine zero, right? I mean, I was beyond dead. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I was conscious, I was talking and they managed to save me, right? I mean, nobody survives this, right? And they managed to save me. And now every day is the life I shouldn't have, you know, I, I and statistically shouldn't be living every single day. And I'm aware of it, right? And that definitely changes your experience of, of stressors, right? Nothing's a stressor now because I'm lucky to experience anything. Even sitting in, I'm, I'm even lucky to be sitting in traffic without air conditioning. I'm sorry, it's all a form of good luck, you know? And if we Although, could, yeah, if we could ac all access that, it would make us much, uh, just for starters, much more pleasant with each other. I, I completely agree, you know, I say it is, in order to be objective, you have to have perspective. And the starting perspective should be that we've, we've all won the lottery by, by living here in, in America and, um, and living in, at this time in history as well. Um, you know, so I, I would broaden it. I, would, I think you could edit your sentence. I would say we are all, all lucky to be living anywhere, yeah. in any way. Unless you're, unless you're in chronic intense pain. I mean, of course there's circumstances that, but, but for most people, I think we can just say we're lucky to be, to be alive. So uh, the boxing, you know, we talk about getting, getting older, entering, you know, our, our second half of, of life. It's, we're both in that, in that boat. Uh, most people 
at that stage say, oh, maybe I'm going to take up stamp collecting, or maybe I'm going to take up bird watching, or maybe I'm going to sign up for an Atlas Society book club. You decided to take up boxing. What's up with that? <laughs> you know, it's very, very scary. Boxing is very, very, I found it very, very frightening and physically. You like, you like scary. You like frightening, apparently. Uh, I'm looking feel, at your yeah. oeuvre. I feel like I encounter important things about myself when I'm doing things that I'm not sure will turn out well. Now I, you know, I have two little girls. I will do nothing to jeopardize my own health or or, or, or survival, uh, because I, I, you know, I don't want to deprive myself of them or them of a father, right? So I'm no more war reporting, none of that stuff. I, I, I don't even cross the street against the light. I mean, I'm pathetic, right? But I do need something that puts me in, you know, in what feels like a situation where I'm in over my head, and even friendly sparring you can feel that way. And I just kind of need that. The, the walking along the railroad lines was the same way, man. That was an alien atmosphere and it was potentially dangerous and it was it was freaky out there, right? And I, I just needed that. And and uh, so boxing is 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 one of the ways I get that now. And it just, it, it you know, I grew up in very safe, comfortable circumstances. And I think I grew up feeling like I just needed to be tested in order to feel like I'm alive. Or you thought you grew up in very safe circumstances, which now that I've read um, A Death in Belmont <laughs> turned out safely. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, about that. Uh, is that once you're, uh, without giving a spoiler to, to, the, yeah. to the book, it's a, it's a book about uh, the, the Boston Stranglers. It's, it's something that happened, I think, in the like, early 60s. Early 60s, yeah. So the self-confessed Boston Strangler, Al DeSalvo, during the time that he was said he was murdering people, was working for my parents as a carpenter. And there was a murder down the street in Belmont, um, about a mile away in Belmont, uh, of the exact same modus operandi as all the crimes that he confessed to. But a, a Black guy who had cleaned this lady's house that day was, was tried and convicted of the crime and sentenced to life in prison. And he wouldn't even, even when offered parole on condition that he expressed regret for his crime. He refused, he refused his freedom because he said, I just did not commit that crime. And years later, I mean, we, my family knew when DeSalvo was caught for serial rape and confessed to these murders, my family had this awful secret that Al was down the street at our home uh, alone all day and might have, might have killed Bessie Goldberg. And so my book is an inquiry into whether, into the circumstances of all that and what likely happened. So um, looking back among your, your books, uh, do you, like what percentage of um, the people that read your books are, is an audience that, that you've retained from, from the beginning, from the perfect storm? Does it change over time? I, you know, honestly, I don't know. I mean, when I started, you know, my, my book War about the platoon that I was with in, in, in Afghanistan, um, you know, that got me obviously a lot of military readers that I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think were there before. I mean, some of them maybe read The Perfect Storm or saw the movie, but I, you know, that, that put me within the military readership. Uh, I think that continued with Tribe because part of Tribe, not all of it, but one chapter of it was dealt with PTSD as, a, as, an, as an example of alienation within society. Um, and, you know, that freedom isn't at all explicitly about the military. 
but it's divided into three sections, run, fight, and think, which are the three ways that human society over the last 10,000 years, uh, that human groups have maintained their autonomy in the face of a more powerful foe. And, uh, and so I think there's a certain amount of, um, a certain amount of that way of thinking that resonates with, uh, with soldiers and former soldiers. So we're, we're going to wrap it up in, in a few minutes, but I mentioned up at the top uh, that I wanted to touch on a bit of, of your unique parenting style. And um, parenting is a, is a topic that we focused on here on this webinar, including uh, our interview with Lenore Skenazy, who wrote uh, Free Range Parenting. Um, how did you did you come to to this style? Was this your your wife had uh, and obviously she has a say say in it? But um, tell us a little bit about it's it's not just the, the sleeping together as a family. You don't have a stroller, right? You are always holding your children. Yeah, I mean, obviously strollers were invented after pavement was invented, and <laughs> all all this stuff is quite new. I mean. You know, for the last 10,000 years, humans have lived in homes that were generally one large space uh, with a hearth at one side of it, and people slept in groups. They slept together with their children. And certainly if you go, you know, if you go backpacking into the Bob Marshall wilderness area with grizzly bears and all that stuff in Montana, uh, you're probably not going to put your, your, your 12 month old in a separate little tent, right? The 12 month old is going to be with you. Um, the, the, the quote modern style of parenting really originated in England a couple hundred years ago. Um, it's unique to the English speaking world, uh, or it's predominantly the English speaking world. And it started, you know, relatively recently in human history, but for most of human history, people slept in groups. And of course they didn't have strollers. Um, the Apache didn't have strollers. They carried their children and, you know, by age five or so, the children were sort of strong enough. Uh, to walk a good portion of the day, even carrying some some weight and helping the tribe. So that's the human norm. And so, I, you know, I just, and I've been all over the world in Africa and Afghanistan, and everywhere, you know, everywhere people sleep in groups and children walk or young children are carried. Um, it's very easy to carry a child. You can sling a child by a strap on your front or on your back. And, you know, so I have a, you know, in the city, um, we live in a three-story walk-up, so having a stroller wouldn't be practical anyway. There's no elevator, obviously. So, you know, I, I would have our, the, our littlest girl up strapped to my chest, and that my four-year-old would be on, you know, on my shoulders with her legs dangling down. You know, that's a total of about 60 pounds, right? So, you know, I can walk all day long with 60 pounds. I walk 400 miles along the railroad lines carrying 60 pounds. If I can't do that to get them to daycare and back, you know, what am I alive for? Jesus, you know, like that's that's just a that's just a baseline of human performance that we should all be able to do, or parents should be able to do. So that so that's that's our thinking about that. And you know, as a result, there's there's very little sibling rivalry. You know, they're they're so so securely attached to us because they're 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 not separated from us at night. That scary time that I remember as a little kid when oh it's time to go to bed and you get you get put in your room and the door gets closed and you're in the darkness like it's terrifying for a little primate, which is what little children are. They're young primates. It's terrifying. They get their safety from being from proximity to adults. And so a six-month-old doesn't know that they're in Belmont, Massachusetts and safe as can be, right? Uh, so, so the thinking there is that it makes for very securely attached children, which at least in the case of our two little girls certainly seem to be, seems to be the case. So um, you once gave a commencement speech to a graduating 
class at an elite New York school. And um, correct me if I'm, if I'm failing to capture this, but it seemed like your central piece of advice was be prepared to fail. Uh, that children who are overprepared to succeed may catastrophize failure or fail to take the risks that, that lead to failure, but ultimately to, to, to learning. Uh, what, what was your message there? And, and how yeah, can, I mean, can we all maybe learn from that? Yeah, no, it was a great question. I, mean, I feel like in sort of elite societies, and I grew up in that, so I know it very well, there's this sort of obsession with, with accomplishment and success, and you want an unblemished resume, no, no you know, gap years where you can't explain what you were doing because you were hitchhiking across Africa or whatever. You know, you really, you know, and it's a, it's a ghastly, inhuman way to, con to, to, to have a child lead, lead their life. And so I didn't say be prepared to fail. I, say, I said, be determined to fail. Make sure you fail, right? I mean, if you don't fail, you clearly aren't getting anywhere close to your to your um, capacities, right? You're clearly only doing things that you have completely mastered. And really, what's the point if that's all you're doing with your life? And so, and if you fail um, periodically, you know you're testing yourself, and you you people adapt to failure. They learn a lot. You learn a lot more from failure and from pain than you do from success and pleasure. And you need full quantities of both to be a fully informed, fully integrated human being. And so that's what I was telling them, like, don't worry about your parents and your resume, just make sure you go out there and fail a couple of times and you'll be a fuller, probably happier person for it. So in that regard, what are some of your best failures or, or, or you know, because all oh. of your, your books have been successful and, and uh, uh, all right. So I was a pretty good distance runner when I was young. I was determined to go to the Olympics. I worked as hard as I could. And this is the, you know, gets back to, you know, similar outcomes. There's, it's, in, it's not possible to have similar outcomes for everybody. The genetics, just for, if nothing else, genetics determines a lot of outcomes. So Nobody trained harder than me at 17, right? I ran a 412 mile in college, which is pretty decent. Wow. Right? But I, I didn't go to the Olympics, right? I ran just as hard as any Olympic runner, but they had better genetics. That, in my terms, that was a failure. I failed to be the world-class runner that I fantasized being. Then a little bit later in life, uh, I, I divorced the woman that you mentioned from Bulgaria, still good friends with her, but we had a, got divorced and I, it was a tough time in both of our lives. And, um, and I wanted to put my head in a different place. I started boxing. I don't think I'm a very good boxer, but I also started playing accordion. And I had knew nothing about music. And talk about failure. I mean, I couldn't find C on a keyboard, right? I mean, I just, but failure after failure, wretched song after wretched song, um, I learned to play and I'm a pretty good player now. I mean, people will listen to me and enjoy it. And so you know, that's what I mean about failure. like. Don't be scared of it. That's the only way to something uh, of, of real value, I think. I could not agree more. So um, finally, to, to close, Sebastian, what uh, you've accomplished so much, you've traveled to, to all of these countries, you've written on such a diverse um, range of, of subjects. What is, what's on your bucket list, both uh, personally and in terms of the topics you might like to, to cover? I have yet to discover them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think as we raise our children, um, I, I want them to really encounter the world. And I, I'm sure you know about this. Your your folks were in the Peace Corps, I understand. So I want them to, we want them to encounter the world. So I think we're going to at some point take them out of school 
and sort of do a year of study and travel in each continent, um, including North America, of course, um, Asia, Africa. Um, maybe we'll skip Australia. I don't know. It's a it's a, an amazing place. Is that a continent? Maybe it's not even a continent. I don't know. Uh, but I, anyway. I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I you know we're hoping to be in the non-English speaking part of the world. Uh, basically, I mean, my dad grew up in France. We lived there when I was a kid. It was an amazing experience. So. You know, I think that's one thing. I don't know if it's a bucket list, but it's a plan anyway. Um, and I think I'm going to write about what happened to me when I almost died. You know, my uh, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious. Um, and um, as I was dying, a, a black hole opened up underneath me and I started getting pulled down into it. And then my dead father appeared. He was a physicist, a very rational man. My dead father appeared over me and started trying to comfort me. And I'm really at pains to explain how that happened. Um, and I would like to write, I'm going to write a book called Pulse about what keeps us alive and what happens. Pulse. Pulse. What, mm -hmm. what keeps us alive and what happens when we die. Well, uh, in your research, I'll volunteer the services of my father. Uh, he's, a, he's a cardiologist. He's seen many patients um, have near-death experiences. And I, I would be also interested to hear what he'd have to say about, about your case. We're very happy that it turned out the way it it did. Um, any any other points that I might have missed or uh, that you wanted to cover? Um, you know, I, I guess I would just say that just in keeping with the the focus of your organization, which I think is a wonderful one, the eternal human struggle is to balance the entirely healthy and natural desires of the individual to enact their own policies, their own to. to pursue their own interests and be left alone, to, to balance that with the equally important and enormously gratifying experience of being part of a community community and committed to its welfare and even prepared to sacrifice for it. And, and, and when a person and a society can achieve a sort of, a sort of rough balance of those two imperatives, um, you, you get you get great satisfaction and great social health and individual health. And, you know, I think that's the eternal human struggle. And I, th and I think books like Atlas Shrugged go to the heart of, you know, one very, very important component of that, of that human puzzle that we all must solve. Well, you know, Atlas Shrugged is, a, is uh, about freedom, but of course there is Galt's Gulch uh, without spoiling that novel either, which is, is a community kind of a utopia that, uh, that people who are creative and creators, but who, who don't wanna be taken advantage of and, and who want to live life on their own terms with friends and colleagues of right. their choosing. So yeah. uh, that's a wonderful book. This is a spectacular book. And, uh, and it's a wonderful read. I also recommend uh, folks that you get it on Audible and we'll put that link in, our, um, in the chat. And Sebastian, thank you very much. If you come back out to California, we'd love to see you here. And we are very, very grateful for, uh, for your insights and for the time today. Likewise, thank you. I, it, it was a thrilling conversation, very, very interesting and made me think in all kinds of new ways. And I always appreciate that. All right. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. That was.